Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on the programme today on a cloudy autumn day here in the capital is Alan Thompson. Um, Alan is the Managing Director at High Impact Consultancy, a provider of strategic and innovative IT support and media services to businesses and schools across the UK and abroad. Uh, Alan, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, Alan, welcoming you onto the airwaves alongside me. And um, COVID-19, of course, is the dominant headline throughout the course of uh, 2020 so far. And it has proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life, really. But for yourself and your business, to what extent has the pandemic affected things? Uh, yeah, dramatically, uh, as I'm sure it has for many people. Uh, we offer three key main services um, to education and to, to businesses, as you said yourself. Um, all of those services are face-to-face. So uh, our curriculum work that our consultants do in the classroom with teacher training for workshops, uh, obviously very face-to-face, getting into the classroom with the teachers and the children. Uh, The technical support services that we offer uh, cover all of the infrastructure and everything from servers and backups to printer inks and microphones and everything else that schools use. Uh, And that, again, is is a very face-to-face service. It's getting into the school on a sometimes a daily basis, sometimes two, three times a week, uh, and sometimes weekly. Uh, But nevertheless, it's a very hands-on, face-to-face service. And the third part of our business uh, is media services, where we we do uh, a lot of work in the corporate sector for people like Manchester United or uh, Corinthia Hotels, Mm. uh, Twickenham, places like that, where we go in and and get on-site and make videos, promotional videos, staff training videos, but it's, again, it's very face-to-face. Um, so all three departments were suddenly, within a couple of weeks, having to, to totally rethink their offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, schools closed, hotels closed, hospitality just ground to a halt. Uh, and, yeah, we had to, to totally rethink our approach to, to those three key services with, with 42 staff all, all looking to the management team to, to see what was going to work. Exactly right. And um, managers and business leaders have really had to step up during this time and try and provide some inspiration, some motivation, and most importantly, reassurance to try and safeguard people's mental well-being at a time like this. But when you are the one running the show and there isn't anybody above you to refer to as such, and you need to sort of drum up some inspiration for yourself, where is it that you would tend to look to to find that? Uh, we have a very strong, uh, a very strong team across the whole business, you know, but our management team is brilliant. Um, and we got together, there's seven of us on the management team, and, and right from the beginning we decided that um, when the, the furlough scheme came out, we decided that the, the one thing we wanted to do was to really get the message across to staff that it was, it was business as usual. You know, yes, we were reinventing the way we do things, and we'd never had an offer that worked remotely or from home, but it was business as usual. We had a job to do, we had clients who needed to, to have their work done, and we were going to find a way of doing it. So we decided that we weren't going to furlough anybody, um, even our cleaner, you know, we didn't follow anybody. Nobody came to the office, but we, we decided that the message, the, the, the impression we wanted to, to really embrace was, okay, you're going to hear all these horror stories. You're going to hear about people losing their jobs and things, but we want you to be up and dressed in the briefings at 8.30 in the morning. Okay, it's going to be on a webcam now rather than in person, but, you know, we are 
business as usual. And I think from what I've heard from the staff much further down the line as we all are now, is that that really helped. You know, it gave them that confidence that, you know, okay, my job's secure. The expectation is that I get up in the morning, I do my job, and, and it might be very different to anything I've done before. But, you know, the, the leadership believes in me and that I can do my job and there's no furloughing and, and off we go. And it was it was business as usual. And then we, we actually... We did really well in in, through, in some areas through COVID. Obviously, some areas were very difficult to get through. Uh, but in some areas, we actually strengthened our offering and had to employ staff. So, uh, in the team, as we as we saw three or four new staff come into the team over the last six months and running, you know, a recruitment campaign on social media and things, the, the buzz around the business was very much, you know, wow, we continue to grow. We go from strength to strength. We've got new offerings, new services, new products. And our clients were, were coming back to us almost on a daily basis, thanking us and saying how great the service had been. So if you can really kind of get that buzz around the business rather than the doom and gloom that was everywhere else, you know, and I knew the staff were feeling doom and gloom in their personal lives, that it was on the TV. You know, every day we were hearing you know, the, 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 the figures about you know, COVID um, deaths and, and people contracting the virus. And yet what we wanted to create in the workplace was this very exciting, positive, you know, let's, let's grab an opportunity and then move forward. And that positivity is infectious and we could all really use a dose of that while morale is low. It is important in leadership during a crisis to really look out for the mental well-being of those people around you, isn't it? Because it has amplified this whole situation, the importance of mental health well-being, really thrust it back into the limelight. And perhaps it's something that even though it's been focused on more in recent years, maybe we still don't quite focus on it quite enough yet. Yeah, I'd agree. I mean, um, we, we you know, like like most staff of you know a larger size. I know we're quite big now, got 40, 42 staff. But from our you know, humble beginnings, that's quite you know there were two of us in my dining room in the early days. So you know, to have forty two staff and lots of people coming in that you you don't know their backgrounds, you don't know you know what they've gone through in their personal lives, and and again, you know, like you say, the the, the challenges to to this complete disruption to the norm. Uh, everybody is affected differently, and I think we've had to be sympathetic to that. We have a, in our teams and look across the business, we have um, very strong teams where the team leader knows their staff very well, so they've been alert to to any any uh, signs of concern that have come up. And you know, it's certainly even coming back in again. You know, because once we were told to try and get people back into work, mm. you know, we had lots of people who were anxious, who were perhaps had family relatives or family members they were looking after who they were concerned about and we did want people to come back in you know we did want to get that creative buzz in the business again and of course working in schools when they opened we had to get our staff back into schools and that was a you know you had to be very sensitive you couldn't just say to everyone right back to work you know it was understanding that every single individual had different um concerns and fears and some were desperate to come back in because they missed the workplace some were a little anxious and there's no staff handbook for COVID. You know, you can put all the policies and procedures in place, uh, and we have, you know, but certainly nothing would would come close to helping you through the, these turbulent times. Um, even when, say, one to two years' time, hopefully we do have a working vaccine and COVID-19 itself is no longer an issue, do you think we'll ever see the sort of conventional workplace, especially the office, return to the way that it was? Or do we think that it's now going to be forever changed? I hope not. I think we'd be missing a trick if we if we did. I think you know what I mean. I have clients all over all over the UK, and you know I have to every year I'll go and sit down with them from an hour, take a pack of biscuits, sit with a coffee, talk to them about their contract that's just running out, and plan the next contract. And there's no reason why that couldn't be done 
on Zoom or Skype or an equivalent Teams, whatever. Um, and I'm going to, my approach is going to be to say to these clients who would never have considered doing something over video, to say to them, look, you know, if, if that's something you'd like, we can do that. If it's more efficient for you, if it saves the environment, if it's just a, you just want to have a quick meeting and you know, look at the contract together, we can do this very quickly over Zoom. And I think, yeah, we can become a lot more efficient. Obviously, there's there's positives and negatives to that. Um, mm. But I think we'd, we'd be missing a trick if we didn't look at this period and go, okay, what are we going to take away from this? Whether we're looking at the environment, whether we're looking at efficiencies, whether we're looking at well-being, you know, sitting in traffic for an hour before you've even started your working day. And again, at the end of the day, you know, I'm not saying, I think there'll be a, uh, an amalgamation of the two. I think mm. that we'll, we'll come up with a hybrid where we say, I mean, we've already started to do it now. We've said, for certain tasks, we will encourage working at home, and for certain tasks, we'll encourage people to, to be in the office with with their team. And I think that that's a, a really powerful thing. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't want to go back. I think we should always be moving forwards. Um, yeah, so we'll see what opportunities it's offered us overall. I think the amalgamation idea is a very good one and there is some real merit in that because there are mental health and well-being arguments for both, of course, having time in the office and enjoying that human social interaction that we've lacked during the last few months. And I think we took for granted pre-pandemic, but also the benefits to the work-life balance of having some flexibility to work from home one or two days a week as well. Um, so that's going to be very important to see how we can continue to apply that going forward from here. Um, in the meantime, while we're focusing on keeping positive and keeping the morale high, um, there are probably a lot of young people out there that could well be tuning into this podcast and thinking about the impact that COVID is having on the economy and on their employment prospects in particular, Alan. So as a business leader yourself, what message would you have to give to those youngsters out there that may be very disheartened to get them to just sort of pick up on um, their heads, see what opportunities are out there and start on the road to success? Um to a question, obviously, being in education, it's something that we're, we're, we focus on a lot. We work with a lot of students on careers. One of the things we've had to do during this period is a lot of the, the Gatsby benchmarks that, um, that centre in on, on career development in young people, particularly at secondary school, um, that involves getting into the workplace, meeting employers, meeting people who have a job and exploring the roles. So we've been looking at digital solutions to that. We've been looking at you know, virtual um, 3D tours of places or live streaming interviews of people. And we, we've done a, a lot of work around careers during this period, working with secondary schools to, to try and give them this uh, that experience. Um, what I would say is that this is very much the, the language and the technologies that we're, we're embracing now that are, are the, what we call the digital natives in their language. Now, this is, this is your time, young people. You know, this is, if you've, if you've sat making podcasts, if you've sat making, you know, streaming videos to YouTube, if you, you've done things in a virtual world from home, um, you know, this is, this is the time when all of those virtual reality things, augmented reality, uh, things being on the web, you know, communication tools like you and I being on the phone here now, even, you know, and creating a podcast that's going to be shared could be going globally, you know, um, this is the, this is the language, this is the technology of that generation. And I think it's a good time to, to have that, you know, that, that expertise, uh, to be in that world. So look for what you look for what you look for what you look for what you've got and what you, you excel at and see how it fits into this this new world that we now live in it is adapting it's innovation isn't it and that ultimately is what yeah. leadership is all about finding new ways of doing things going back to basics and indeed so many business leaders that i've spoken to on this program in recent months have said that it is like going back to when they first started in business having to find new income streams having to sort of adapt from the ground up and it just goes to show that so much about leadership is about 
learning on the spot, isn't it? It's trial and error. It's continuous development and continuous improvement. And that's something we shouldn't forget. Exactly. I mean, I, for, it's interesting for me. I, I started my, um, I was a primary school teacher for 10 years and uh, then went into business about 15 years ago uh, to, to look at this consultancy offer that we, we, we now have. Um, and I've never had any sort of business training or leadership training. So I embarked upon an MBA um, 18, to, 18 months, two years ago, uh, which has just come to an end during COVID. Um, and for me to, to, to see how you need to pivot and how you need to be agile and how you need to look at every opportunity and turn it into a, you know, every threat and turn it into an opportunity and all of the things that we've done on the NBA, you know, suddenly we had this great sort of um, opportunity to put it all into practice with COVID and, and certainly, as you've mentioned, leadership, you know, those looking for those skills, those skills of empathy and, and then leadership and, and, and showing a direction to your staff and all of those things came into their own from the MBA. So I would strongly recommend any kind of formal leadership training to anyone who hasn't had it because it's been eye-opening for myself. Mm, certainly and um, there are so many other people that you can reach out to to learn from as well because we're certainly not lone wolves as leaders you're absolutely right and now um, as we start to um, think about um, the future because I'm conscious that our time on the program is starting to draw to its close Alan we know that the next 12 months are going to be quite challenging there are a lot of variables but we do know that we're going to have to get through quite a difficult winter beforehand Um, and as we start to negotiate that difficult period and hopefully begin to really look to the future um, what is it that you're really hoping to achieve over the course of the next year at high impact and indeed where do you want the business to be this time in 12 months um well actually during during lockdown and during this period we had a lot of opportunities for research and development and as i mentioned we have three departments in the business um which is sort of technical sports services curriculum consultancy and media services and um, but we've kind of had the opportunity to really explore a fourth uh, avenue which we're very excited about which is a sort of learning and development arm which is going to bring all of our expertise in education and understanding how people learn, you know, understanding cognitive overload and understanding how presentations should be put together and things like that. But then using our media expertise of, of the virtual world and 3D virtual tours and interactive experiences in an online, anytime, anywhere learning environment, uh, bringing those two together for the corporate sector when it comes to uh, training, staff induction, professional development, you know, new staff that you typically now in this um, world we live in can't get 50 people in a classroom and sit them through a PowerPoint mm-hmm. for an afternoon. Um, you know, we've we found much more engaging, exciting ways of working with people. So for me, it's at the company here, we're really excited about having a new wing, a new arm to the business to, to really transform the way people do their staff induction and to do their, their ongoing uh, staff development and learning and development. Um, so I think that that's for us, but I think sort of the bigger picture would be to, to do what we've said a couple of times now, which is look for the, the positives uh, in amongst all of the, the, the tragedy and the sadness and the chaos that, that we've had with COVID um, and see where we can you know, whether it is for the environment or whether it is for your own personal life, work-life balance or for your business or for your community, you know, look for things that we can say, well, we wouldn't have had that opportunity before um, and now we've been presented with it. We've come up with a solution and, and let's let's come out of this with, with some positive that's exactly what we have to do because as I've said already that positivity is so so infectious and it's very important for the morale during a time like this as well and it seems as if Alan there's plenty that you've got to be getting on with and I wish you all the luck in the world and really making that vision possible and just given just how 
ambitious that is i actually think it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year and have you back on the program just to see how that vision is starting to be borne out in the coming year that'd be great i'd be i'd love to do that thank you very much for having me today I thoroughly welcome that opportunity, Alan. It's been wonderful having you on the show. And um, most importantly as well, do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on because we're certainly not out of the woods yet. And I would also extend that to everybody involved with High Impact as well. Thank you very much indeed, and to you. I would extend that message to all of the listeners tuning into today's podcast also. Please do continue to stay well, look after yourselves, and be considerate of others because it makes such a difference in saving lives at this time. Um, For me, it was a pleasure to welcome Alan Thompson, Managing Director, High Impact Consultancy, onto the programme today. Um, Next up on the show, I'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett enjoyed a distinguished political career despite being blind from birth, holding numerous senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair during his premiership and serving as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. Lord Blunkett was elevated to the House of Lords back in August 2015 and I do hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew welcomed the opportunity to speak with him. That is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate, Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, 
production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on 
issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? 
I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in you deal with what you're immediately faced with mm. you you can you can sponsor reports and this is true of business planning of course as well and scenario planning for what business 
continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, but very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack, uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy Um, Now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, 
the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected so I very much if I were in government and I always think of things in that context what would I do if I were in government I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? 
Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakira has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that 
as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Chaloner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.